Okay. Good morning, everyone. It can be more appropriate than you know. Uh, just wait and see. Uh, so, good to be here with you. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at South Langley. Um, before we get going, just want to do two things. One, uh, want to give a shout out to Rob and Marlene Berg. Where are they? Right over here. So there's South Langley missionaries in Mongolia and other things. And now. Good to have you guys here. Um, and then secondly, just wanted to make a couple of comments on something that we've had um, a couple of questions about over the past couple of months. And so our worship music here at South Langley is undergoing a bit of a renaissance. We've seen, you know, a real elevation of the energy and the and the quality of the music, and it's awesome. And I don't know about you, but this morning I felt the mountains tremble, right? Throwback, love that song. Anyways, um, so what we keep hearing is we love worship. Um, is there anything that we can do about the drum volume? Because there are some people who drums are loud instrument, and so it's a physical discomfort issue. And so I need you real quick to know three things. Uh, one, we're not, we're not amplifying the drums. I know people see microphones on them. Those just go to the earpieces that the musicians wear. Uh, number two, we're actively working on sound management uh, for our drums and stuff. Uh, and number three, this room, because of its shape, has hot spots. And so these two walls, the, if you're in this area, the sound just bounces back and forth. And so we're working on long-term solutions. Short-term solution is the corners of the room are much more friendly places. So just want to let you know that we're working on that. We want everyone to be able to enter into worship and encounter God here. Um, so we're working on that. Uh, worship team, we love you guys. Drummers, we love you guys. First, you're doing great today. Um, that's where that's at. So let's get going with our text for today. Uh, it is November fourth, which means that uh, it means a few things. It's seven weeks from Christmas, apparently. Uh, it's fall back Sunday, so everyone's super refreshed today. Uh, we definitely all did the wise thing and took the extra hour of sleep, right? We didn't stay out an extra hour. <coughs> and you may have noticed that some gentlemen around are looking extra handsome in the upper lip area because there's this thing called Movember, okay? And in case, in case you don't know, uh, Movember is a... It's a thing that people do where they'll, uh, where men will grow a mustache to raise awareness and funds for men's health issues. Okay, I think it started um, with with men's cancer. It's a little bit wider now. And so, November first, I saw this ad uh, from the Movember Foundation Canada. So they got the two guys there and the mustache logo, and it says "Doing it for my," which is not a complete sentence. Uh, they're giving you the opportunity to finish the sentence, right? Like, I'm doing it for my, my dad or my uncle or my neighbor or whoever it is in your life, whoever the man is in your life who's been touched by these, these health issues. And what they're doing there, of course, is giving you the opportunity uh, to, to make that personal connection to their cause. Because, of course, we're all, you know, we're all against cancer in principle, but it hits you differently when it's someone close to you. Right? And that's, that's true 
a lot of things. We're all against injustice, but injustice hits you differently when it affects someone close to you. And we're all against even death. Like, we're sad that people die, but it hits you differently when it's someone close to you. And that's what, that's what happens in today's passage. That's where we're going to go today. So, so we're continuing our series in the Gospel of John, and we're going to see Jesus encounter death, but it's, it's going to hit him differently because it's someone close to him. It's his friend, Lazarus. And so this is a beautiful story. We're going to take two weeks on it, and all of the happy stuff is next week. So, t- so today, today at times maybe a little bit heavy as, as we watch Jesus confront death. Um, I believe it'll be a encouraging too, but just want to let you know that if, if this brings anything up, up uh, we have a prayer team available after the service. We also have um, church counseling. We can also grab a pastor if we can work through everything. We're trying, we're trying to be very gentle as we go through this one. Jesus is going to confront the death of his close friend Lazarus today. Make sure you come back next week. Um, so, so we've already heard the passage read. Um, just to set the stage, let's look again at the first three verses. Okay? So, it says, A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. So, these guys are, they're friends of Jesus, okay? In verse 2, um, it talks about how Mary is going to come up in a later story. John's forecasting that, and we'll talk about that in four weeks, I think. Um, these guys, Mary and, and Martha and Lazarus, they also show up in Luke chapter 10. Jesus is in their town, Bethany, and he uh, enjoys their hospitality. So, these are his close friends. The other thing to notice is where they live. They live in Bethany. And uh, so they live in this town called Bethany. And verse 18 actually tells us that Bethany is only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem. So that's where they are. And they send a message to Jesus. Jesus, you better come. Lazarus is sick. Where is Jesus when he gets that message? John has told us, and so um, right before this story, at the end of chapter uh, chapter ten, it says, "Once again they tried to arrest him, but he got away and left them. He went beyond the Jordan River, near the place where John was first baptizing, and stayed there a while." Okay, so Jesus, and just to rewind a little bit, Jesus has been kind of in conflict with some of the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, and so it gets intense. They try to arrest him, and he leaves, and he goes to this town beyond the Jordan River, so that's going to be east of the Jordan River, and it was, it was the place where John the Baptist uh, did his baptizing work. Now, here's something crazy. When you, if you go back to John chapter 1, it tells us the name. It tells the story of John doing his baptizing work, and it tells us the name of the city where he does that baptizing work. And the name of the city is Bethany. The name of the city is, so, so Jesus is in Bethany, and he gets a message from Bethany saying, Jesus, leave Bethany and come to Bethany immediately. 
So, this is going to be important. So, I guess the systems for geography and stuff were not so refined back then. And so, in ancient Palestine, there were two cities named Bethany. And they're both in this story. Okay, so, here, I'll show you a map. Um, so, you can, you can see, you can kind of see, uh, on, in the circle on the left-hand side, so to the west, Jerusalem is there, and right next to it is Bethany. Okay, that's Bethany near Jerusalem. That's where, um, that's where uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. And then in the other circle on the right to the east side is Bethany beyond the Jordan, okay? In kind of see the Jordan River runs, runs up from the Dead Sea there. That's Bethany beyond the Jordan. It's about 20 or 30 miles away from Jerusalem and the other Bethany, okay? That's going to be really important. John is deliberately setting this story up, and this story is a tale of two Bethany's. Hold that thought. So there's a whole bunch more discussion, um, which we'll unpack next week, actually. Um, but just to summarize, we're going to skip a bit. Just to summarize, Jesus gets the message, Jesus, Lazarus is sick, you better come. And Jesus eventually decides, okay, I'm going to come. He waits two days, and then he leaves for Bethany. It's a day's journey to get to Bethany, and he rolls into Bethany, and Lazarus has died. He's dead and buried. He's been in the tomb for four days. And so everyone is mourning, uh, and Jesus meets up with Mary and Martha as he as he comes into Bethany, and that's where we're going to pick the story up in verse thirty-two. So it says, "When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died.' When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But someone said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Uh, there are several times in the Bible where we see Jesus' emotions come to the surface. You can think, back in this series to when Jesus drove the money changers and vendors out of the temple because they were disrupting worship. They were crowding out um, the worship of Yahweh and making it so people couldn't enter in. Uh, and he got angry and he drove them out. You can think ahead of the story to a garden called Gethsemane where Jesus, uh, hours from the cross, is so distraught that he sweats drops of blood. But I think that maybe more than anywhere else in the scripture, this paragraph gives us a look at the emotional life of Jesus. It says, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Jesus wept. Jesus was still angry. Four times, John points out Jesus' emotional state as he's confronting the death of his friend. That word for uh, deeply troubled means disturbed, it means stirred up, it means shaken. The modern slang would be shook. He's totally shook. Picture a snow globe, right? Everything is calm and settled, and then he's shaken, and it's just 
swirling and it's chaos in there. That's what's happening in Jesus' mind. And the word for angry here is the word that the Greeks used to describe when a horse rears up on its hind legs and snorts. Okay, you know that, that like indignant, ominous, threatening snort that horses do? Okay, I know we got some horse people in the congregation because it's self-landly, right? Can't find a good restaurant to save your life, but if you need a horse, no problem. So, so when a horse does that, that angry snort, maybe you're sitting on a horse and it starts to starts to you know move around a little bit, and you're suddenly aware that you're sitting on top of several hundred pounds of pure rage, and you're very small, and these reins are very small, and if this thing goes sideways, you're not sure you could contain this thing. That's what Jesus feels. That's what Jesus' emotions are doing within him. Right now. See, the famous verse in this passage is 35. It's Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. So when you're memorizing scripture, you get your sticker or whatever for memorizing. It's two words in most Bibles, actually. Jesus wept. And so a lot of people read this passage, that verse sticks out to them, and they say, oh, Jesus is having a private moment of quiet, tender grief for his friend. Uh, no, that's that's not that's not the case. Jesus Jesus isn't like sad. Jesus is seething. Jesus is like an angry, snorting, rearing up horse. That's what he feels like. Jesus is uh, shaken up. He's in turmoil. He can barely contain his uh, his anger. So when you read this passage, you have to read it with the intensity of that. With, with the appropriate uh, intensity, right? Picture Jesus, he walks up and he sees his uh, he, he sees his friend Mary coming toward him, his, his dear friend Mary. She's, you know, her eyes are red, her hair is messed up. She runs up to him and she falls at his feet sobbing. He looks down at her, he looks up at the crowd. Probably many of these people would have been mutual friends, like he, he would have known many of them and they are wailing, they're weeping, they're heartbroken. And right here in verse 33, we kind of get that moment where the emotion hits him. Right? You've, you've probably been there where, where the emotion hits you. It's like you've been punched in the chest. You know, picture Jesus. He's here. He's confronted this scene. Everything, I imagine everything kind of went into slow motion for Jesus. Okay? It hits him. The edges of his vision blur. He can, he can uh, hear his pulse throbbing in his eardrums. See, here we are, and we're near the end of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus has encountered plenty of pain and sorrow and even death. Read the other Gospels. There are at least two other stories before this where Jesus has encountered death. But it's Lazarus. It's his friend, and so it hits, him, it hits him in a different way. And so here's Jesus. He's surrounded by people weeping and wailing. His close friend is on the ground at his feet. His other close friend is in a tomb. And it's like 
I imagine him kind of setting his jaw and just something rises up in him that just says no. It just, it just says, no, no, my friend does not belong in a tomb. No, death should not get the last word. No, this story should not end with tears and grief and regret. No, I will not stand for this. It's like, it's like death has messed with the wrong Messiah. And so you can, and so he, he turns to the crowd and he says, where have you put him? They say, Lord, come and see. And then he weeps and he's still angry as he arrives at the tomb. Jesus' uh, tears aren't tears of sadness, they're tears of rage. They're tears of rage at the great insult of death. <clears throat> and so he walks up to the tomb, furious. And there's going to be a showdown. But that's next week. Even at this point in the story, there are several takeaways. Uh, several things that we, that we can learn about this just from watching what's unfolded so far. And so we're going to walk through uh, several takeaways. Um, so the first is healthy spirituality includes emotional honesty. Jesus, Jesus um, comes in and, and he, he enters into the, the grief and the emotion of the moment. And John is careful to point out that Jesus, Jesus felt strongly about this. Jesus uh, fully experienced this grief. By the way, it would be easy for Jesus to uh, maybe brush aside the grief because, spoiler alert, uh, Lazarus doesn't stay dead. He's here to fix the situation. Okay? Any, any fixers in the room? I'm a fixer. So, like, when my kids are crying... I just want to be like, look, stop crying. I'm going to fix this. Look, I'm taking care of it. You, you steal your soup or whatever. I'm taking care of it. I got it. Stop crying. I'm a great dad. <laughs> <laughs> but it would have been easy for Jesus to do that, right? I, I mean, I'm fixing this. But instead, he enters in. He, he lets the, the grief and the sorrow penetrate. And he, he feels that he grieves along with <laughs> With his friends. Part of what we see here is the difference between Eastern and Western cultures. And so in the ancient Near East, they were, uh, they had a very different view towards emotion, right? You would enact your emotions. The proper thing to do when someone died was to go to their house and wail out loud. That's how you honored them. When people uh, were grieving, they would often wear uh, sackcloth, they wore burlap, the ashes on their heads, so they had actual mechanisms for expressing their emotion. Uh, we Westerners are bad at that. We're, we're bad at that. Yeah, I, think, I think it goes back to Greek Stoicism, and so we have this, this narrative in Western culture, and including Western Christianity, which I think comes from the Stoics, who said, being mature, being strong, being put together means means holding it all in. It means that you, you manage your emotions. 
And so, and so we have this thing in our culture where when people show emotion, they, they almost want to apologize for it, right? They say, oh, sorry. Or when people, um, maybe people will say something, they'll explain, you know, if they're going through something, they'll say, you know, they'll say something that indicates that they're feeling angry or bitter or abandoned, and then they say something like, well, can I say that? Is one of you guys have that? Yeah, it's okay. <clears throat> Healthy spirituality includes emotional honesty. The, the life of faith is not a life of pretending. It's not a life of denial. I have a friend who uh, struggles with depression, and I was talking with him um, this past week, and he said to me that one of the things that he does that has been most healing is when people ask him how he's doing, he doesn't say fine if he's not fine. And just, just saying it, it has, has helped him be in a healthier place. Sometimes that means people get more than they bargained for. But if we don't have room in our lives for someone to say something more than fine, maybe, that's, maybe they don't need to make an adjustment. Maybe we need to make an adjustment. Part of what this passage does is that it affirms that feeling and expressing emotion doesn't make you weak or immature. Um, we see Jesus react with strong emotion, and that tells us that there are situations where strong emotion is appropriate. Now, the Bible calls us to be patient and kind and slow to anger and careful with our words, absolutely, but there are situations that grieve the heart of God, and it's okay that they grieve our hearts as well. In fact, they should. Uh, I love I love what Brene Brown says. She says uh, we cannot selectively numb emotions when we numb the painful emotions. We also numb the positive emotions. See, the truth is, the life of faith includes grief and glory, and we do ourselves no favors in pretending it doesn't. And if we numb ourselves to the grief, we may numb ourselves to the glory. We talked about how the book of Psalms in the Bible, the, the worship book in the Bible, has a bunch of Psalms that are happy, they're joyful, they're full of thanksgiving and happiness, and there's a whole lot of Psalms that are gut-wrenching, uh, tear-soaked Psalms of despair. And, and what we see in the Psalms, what we see in the life of Jesus is that healthy spirituality includes emotional honesty. Second takeaway is Jesus is deeply opposed to death. He's deeply opposed to death. Now he's going to talk later in John 12 about how sometimes there could be death that leads to life. Okay, a seed falls down and dies and then life comes out of it. And death leading to life is a good thing, but it's a good thing because of the leading to life part, not the death part. And so Jesus is deeply opposed to death. You can feel in this passage, he's almost offended, like death, how dare you show your ugly face here? He's deeply opposed to death. And it's not surprising because if you trace the Gospel of John, you'll find that Jesus always expresses his mission as a mission of life, right? So John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at John 10, verse 10, which says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The Greeks had two words for life, bios and zoe. Okay, bios is uh, the root of biology. It's biological life. Your heart is beating, your lungs are breathing. And then there's zoe, and zoe is something more. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's not surviving, it's thriving. It's not just existing, it's being fully alive. Jesus says, I come that they may have zoe, that they may have something more than just existing. Everything in John is pointing to the fact that Jesus is, is trying to bring people life, and so he's fundamentally opposed to death. Uh, he's passionate that people would have full, abundant, eternal life. And so when he sees forces of death and decay and sickness and sorrow and alienation and brokenness taking hold, he's furious about it. So uh, that's a challenge to us as Jesus' followers. If Jesus is our example, and Jesus is moved to tears and moved to action when he sees forces of death taking hold in the world, what should our reaction be? Are we moved to tears and moved to action? See, the truth is, we as followers of Jesus need to realize that there's still too much, too, too many forces of death in this world. Um, there's too much literal death going on. Okay, there are too many lives ending violently or, or through disease or through starvation. 3.1 million children die every year from malnutrition. The, and then there's, so there's physical death that still goes on in the world, and then there's um, spiritual and psychological and emotional and economic death that are at play even among the living, right? There are forces of death beyond just people, people's lives ending. When people are dehumanized through human trafficking or abuse or through uh, or pornography, those are forces of death. When the poor are oppressed, that's a force of death. When families are broken apart, that's a force of death. And the heart of Jesus that we see here is to rage against the forces of death. Is that our heart as his followers? Uh, the next takeaway that is related to that is Jesus is willing to die to defeat death. So remember the two Bethanies? There, Jesus is in Bethany beyond the Jordan. And he's going to travel to Bethany near Jerusalem. So the narrative of this story is actually set up to emphasize that Jesus is choosing between two Bethany's. And, um, so I was an English major, and one of the things they tell you is when, when an author does that, like he's trying to set up a deliberate contrast. And if you trace, if you, if you dig in and find out more about the two Bethany's, you'll find that they're very different places in the Gospel of John. Bethany beyond the Jordan is the place that Jesus fled to. It's a place of safety. If you go back to the story, it's a place where people love Jesus, where they believe him, where he's welcome. It's a place of safety and comfort. That's Bethany beyond the Jordan. 
And then there's Bethany near Jerusalem. And it's the opposite, because it's right by Jerusalem where the religious leaders are, okay, they want Jesus arrested and, and dead. And people there, when, when Jesus preaches and stuff, they're confused about who he is. They don't get it. They're maybe a little bit hostile. These are two very different places. You see that in the story. Jesus says, let's go, let's go down to Bethany in Jerusalem. And the disciples protest, right? Rabbi, we're saying, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? And Jesus insists. And so then Thomas says, okay, let's go too and die with Jesus. And so the whole story is shot through with this awareness uh, that Bethany is Bethany near Jerusalem is near Jerusalem. It's painfully close to Jerusalem and to danger and to hostility and to risk. And so by going there, Jesus is indicating that he's willing to die and to defeat death. You may remember that um, that many of the key stories in John take place around Jewish religious festivals. Okay, that's, that's happened several times. It'll happen again. Uh, this story is interesting because no Jewish religious festival is mentioned. There's kind of a gap. But if you follow the timeline of John, this story would have taken place um, in early March. And there is a Jewish religious festival in early March. It's called Purim. P-U-R-I-N. Purim is a festival where Jewish, Jewish people uh, commemorate the story of Queen Esther. Took place about 500 years before Jesus. It's in the biblical book of Esther. In that story, the Jews are under the rule of King Xerxes of Persia. King Xerxes marries Esther, not knowing she's a Jew. Uh, he marries her because she's beautiful. So, and uh, and then a plot arises to exterminate the Jewish people. Esther is the only person who's got access to the king. But she doesn't really have access because the law said that uh, if you went into the king's throne room unsummoned, okay, uninvited, even if you're his wife, the penalty could be death, which is really uncool. But that was the rule back then. Kings were pretty serious about stuff like that. And so Esther has this moment where she realizes she needs to go talk to the king and save her people, but it could mean death for her, and eventually she does it. She risks her life, and she goes in and talks to the king. He receives her um, happily, and her people are saved. And so the, the Jews in early March are remembering the story. They're remembering the story where the Jews lived because Esther was willing to die. And now here's Lazarus, and this is a story where Lazarus will live because Jesus is willing to die. Like Esther, Jesus is, is willing to die to defeat death. He's willing to die to save the ones he loves. A couple more takeaways. The work to which God calls us is seldom in safety and comfort. Another way that we could uh, phrase this is the work to which God calls us is seldom in Bethany beyond the Jordan. Amen? 
The word to which God calls us is, is seldom in our place of refuge, our place of comfort, our place of safety, and it's more often in the place of risk and sacrifice uh, and danger. Today is International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And I invite you, actually, as we pray today, to pray for our brothers and sisters around the globe. Right? We heard a story about about a missionary being under persecution, right? And so our brothers and sisters around the globe understand this. They understand that as as this movement called called Christianity tries to beat back the forces of death in the world, um, that often it's going to take us to places of risk and places of sacrifice. It's going to take us to Bethany near Jerusalem. And church, it's my prayer that we as South London Church uh, would not be people who set up camp in Bethany beyond the Jordan, but rather we'd be people who engage with the fact that there are tears to be dried and tombs to be emptied in in Bethany near Jerusalem. The work to which God calls us is celebrate safety. And then here's our, our last takeaway. Like Lazarus, we can live because Jesus is, was willing to die. <coughs> Jesus doesn't die uh, when he goes to Bethany. He doesn't get arrested. He, he manages to leave town again afterwards. Um, but we're going to see that this Incident sparks the the plan to kill Jesus. Okay, this really pours gas on the fire, and this is what ultimately makes the leaders say, "Okay, he, he needs to die." And so, in a sense, Jesus dies to save Lazarus. And of course, that's our story too. That's our story too. We'll talk about this more next week. Uh, John deliberately sets this story up. To, uh, to look backwards toward, toward Esther, but also to look forward to what Jesus would do on the cross um, for all humankind. It's this idea that Jesus loves someone so much that he's willing to lay down his life. That happens here. And about a month later in the story, it's going to happen again on the cross. And so, that's Lazarus' story, that's also the gospel story. And so that's your story and my story. And so we're going to leave it there, in the middle of the story. Jesus has come to Bethany. He's willing to die for the sake of his friend that he loves. That's Lazarus' story. And that's our story as well. And so Jesus did, uh, did die for us. That's, that's where this story goes. A month after the Lazarus story, Jesus was on the cross and he died to reconcile all of us, um, to, to reconcile all of us to God, to bring all of us from death into Zoe, to give us all life to the full. And he asked us to remember that he did that, and so we're going to take time today in communion to remember that he did that. So I want to invite the worship team, um, ushers, you guys can come on up as well and just take your places around the table.
writes in First uh, Corinthians. He says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks for it to God for it. And he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death. And so we invite all of those who understand the meaning of the Lord's Supper, who confess Jesus Christ as Lord in word and life, are accountable to their congregation, and are living in right relationship with God and others to participate in the Lord's Supper and communion today. And if you need to let the plate pass by today, that's okay. I need to feel awkward. So in a moment, in a moment I'll pray, and the ushers uh, will start passing out the bread and cup. Um, the band will be playing. You can sing along with Stacey. You can hang on to your bread and cup, and then I'll come up um, once everyone's served, and we'll eat and drink together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we thank you that you call all of us dear friend, like you call Lazarus. And we thank you that that you laid your life down so that each of us could live, so that the end of our stories uh, would not be death, but would be eternal life, would be life for the full. And so we pause now um, as, we, as we take communion, and we, we remember you, and we praise you for you. In Jesus' name.